0: We're in a series in Ephesians, and we're going to start covering chapter 3. So just like us, just like this group would be, we'd be you know, in our sixth week before we hit the third chapter of Ephesians, going through it line by line. Um, Let me show you where we've been. We've covered chapters 1 and 2, but these are kind of some of the topics we've covered. We've looked at the opening. The doxology, which actually some would say just continues into chapters 2 and 3, because Paul is using kind of this great praise for God. And he begins, though, by giving thanksgiving in verse 15, and then with the theme of us being alive in Christ begins chapter 2. Last week, if you remember, Paul's commandment to the Gentiles was to remember where they were, telling them that they're strangers no more, and also we talked about how Christ is our peace. So let's just take a pause on Ephesians for a moment, because I've been reading a little bit, And there's a great article that kicks off a very important topic this uh, month. Christianity Today has this as its cover article. And it really asks this question. Did Jesus and Paul preach the same gospel? Uh, You might not even be thinking about this question, but it's one that I've been thinking the whole time that I've been reading through Ephesians. It's one that I've been thinking through a while. And I'm not alone. Many people have thought about this question. This question is probably 100 years old, but in the last 30 or 40 years, this question has become something that a lot of people have thought about and written about. So I'd like to just raise the issue for you. Uh, I, some of you, I know, you'll, you'll say it's just you teasing us again and not really going into it. But I just think we should raise the issue because something struck me this week. Here's the question the way it was asked in the cover of the article. It says this. Many biblical scholars and lay Christians have noted that Jesus preached almost exclusively about the kingdom of heaven, while Paul highlighted justification by faith, and not vice versa. Some conclude that they preached two different gospels. Others argue they really both preached about justification, still others say it's all about the kingdom, what gives, and that's the beginning of the article. So if you're interested in reading this article, I would commend it to you, In my honest opinion, it doesn't go far enough on this topic. It's like a four-page article. I mean, this should be three or four books, and there are books on this topic. The reason this even struck me this week is I I want to read just a little bit of the beginning of the article. Maybe this is something that you're resonating with because I've been feeling this in this room a little bit as we talk about Ephesians that we almost don't care. It's almost like the words are kind of just they're just kind of falling around us, but they're not really going in. So listen to what Scott McKnight, who wrote this article, and he's a theologian, focuses on historical views of Jesus and the Gospels. Here's his own kind of confession of how he begins the article. He says this, I grew up with, on, through, and in the Apostle Paul. His letters were the heart of the Bible. From the time I began paying attention to my pastor's sermon, I can only recall sermons on 1 Corinthians The whole book, verse by verse, and Ephesians. There we are. I don't recall a series on the Gospels at any time or on Jesus. Everything was filtered through Paul's theology. Justification was the lens for the Gospel, and life in the Spirit the lens for Christian living. And then I went off to Bible college. I was absolutely mesmerized by Jesus, his kingdom vision, and the Gospels. I decided then and there that my life's pursuit would be Jesus and the Gospels. A few years later, I began my doctoral work on the Gospel of Matthew. Many of you are sitting here probably think we should have a doctoral work on the Gospels of Matthew since we went through it 45 weeks. And a few years after that, began teaching as a young professor at Trinity where I even got to teach Jesus and the Gospels. My experience is not unusual. An increasing tension remains among evangelicals about who gets to set the terms, Jesus or Paul. In other words, will we center our gospel teaching and living on the kingdom or on justification by faith? I bring this up because even as we were talking, when we walked through the first couple verses, there was a lot of tension in this room as we started looking at Paul's description of election and calling and salvation and how he presumed it to be. And there was some wrestling about those concepts, but there was also, I think, somewhere in us... This constant thing when we come back to Paul, at his focus and saying, that's great that you make such an emphasis on justification by faith. Where is it exactly that Jesus makes that same emphasis, or does he? He later on goes on to say this, I've observed in 15 years of teaching college students that students love the Jesus part of the class, but their eyes seem to glaze over when we move from Jesus to Paul. And I feel that way. I feel that way even sitting in here as we get to interact, because I've seen this room when it's on fire and when there's like interaction going on, when there's people wrestling, and I've seen it when we're like, that sounds great. Let's move to the next verse. I just want to call it out, not because I'm trying to call you. I just want to identify because one of the things that's great about being interactive and hearing back from people as we go through something is you actually get to find out things you don't normally find out when you just talk one way at people. And part of it, I think, sometimes is, I have felt this tendency as I've been reading, Paul, that my eyes just kind of glaze over because I think, yeah, that's a great description. Sounds right. Don't know exactly how to fit it all the time. Or it sounds like a grandiose vision of God, but as Philip one time pointed out, we don't always agree with what it says, but we just kind of ignore it and go on believing what we believed before anyway. Now, if you're interested in going further on this, because like I said, we're doing a series on Ephesians, not on Jesus versus Paul, not on kind of like a whole systematic theology of salvation, not on justification, not even on predestination where some of you wanted to go in the first couple weeks. This is a talk on Ephesians. If you want to go deeper, I'm going to put this link to the article up so that you guys can find it. If you want to read a little bit more and see where the tension lies and maybe how at least Scott McKnight tries to articulate it. There have been whole books written on this, and right now there's a large debate that people are following on, do we even understand what Paul meant in the first place? If you read books by like N.T. Wright on one side and John Piper on the other, they've been actually having this conversation by writing books where they respond to one another. So that's kind of just something to point out. Let's go forward in Ephesians. I want you to hear Ephesians, this part right now, just the way a letter would be read to you. We're in chapter 3 you can follow along in your copy of the scriptures if you have it. I'm just going to read it to you with a letter. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, and I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me, through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past has been kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's no wonder sometimes that that happens to us, that we glaze over, because those words pack so much in them, and they're not really just telling a story. They're reciting truth. Remember, Paul is still in the midst of this three-chapter-long doxology. Let's go through it step by step. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. This might be the place where you might hit the backspace key. Because it seems like what Paul has done is started a sentence and then goes off into a digression. He realizes as he's writing, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, as soon as he says that word, it's almost like he's thinking, yes, you know, there's something here I wanted to say about you Gentiles, about you being Gentile. And so he's going to begin saying, I pray for you in this way, but he puts the thought on hold about how it is that he does the prayer, and he goes into talking about them as Gentiles. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, already written briefly. What is the administration of God's grace? If you're reading this on his own, what does Paul mean by this? You've heard of the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Remember, Paul has been given a unique ministry. And that unique ministry is to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he's reminding them that this is God's grace. It was given. You know, we usually think of God's grace in just a salvific term, like God saves me, it's God's grace. But remember, God's grace extends to every part of our life. And in this way, he's saying that it was just grace that you are going to get this gospel that God appointed me and gave me this administration. Administration is kind of a, I don't like that word in this translation. The actual word should be better translated, a word that we talk about in here all the time, stewardship. Paul has a stewardship of God's grace that was given for the people that he was going to take this gospel to. We steward that, all of us together. And here it is, the mystery made known to me. Mysteries, remember, in this kind of writing don't mean things that we don't know. They're things that are known because they're revealed by God. The revelation that's made known is already written about briefly. What is it? You will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Paul is saying that we are getting a glimpse at what it is that God wants to reveal. And the thing that has been kept hidden that people have not quite understood, not quite known that now is made known, now is revealed, the mystery is been told by God is that we have this kingdom that the Gentiles are going to be part of. And he finally says, the mystery is, here it is, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That's the mystery that has been percolating somewhere that has been hidden and is now made known. God hid this so that we could have this understanding of what it is that the mystery is. This debate is old. Gentiles, Jews, like why are we still talking about this? Morgan? Um,
1: it is old for us, you know, because we don't think about it because now it's, you're just raised Christian and, you know, this problem's kind of like past us, but um, if you read the Old Testament, you understand what... How do you make sense of God's promises to Israel? And are they... Just done? Do they have no point? And that's where it should cause us to care because if God has given these promises that we see in the Old Testament and they're totally unfulfilled and, and totally like, ah, that doesn't matter anymore, um, why would we believe God to fulfill his word to us now? Like why would we place our faith, our hope, our trust, our very lives in his hands if he's not uh, if he's not fulfilling things before? And so that's why it should still matter because because he is. Because Paul shows how God is faithful, and and then he wraps the Gentiles into Israel, Then he's still faithful to
0: Israel. I think another reason, by the way, that we don't care as much is not just that we're all raised Christian, but I think Gentiles dominate the church. In fact, you would say Gentiles, by what, like 99 point some percent, dominate the church. So we kind of, in the thousands of years, you know, 2,000 years of history and a total domination by the Gentiles, kind of forget that this at this moment was something that was amazing first that they're going to be included in what he's saying here together with israel's members of one body share us together in what the promise the covenant like god's promise god's covenant like something that something that was reserved to israel is now something that they can come into and how is that done again in christ that's how it's done they get to share the promise, but how do they get to share the promise? In Christ, because everything is in Christ in Ephesians. all right. But what I'm trying to point out here is that we shouldn't lose the marvel because we've moved forward in so much time into a Gentile-dominated church that this was still, at this point, amazing, that God would even do this and reveal it to them. And that's why, remember, he just finished saying to them, remember where you used to be, remember how you were outside, remember you were strangers. But now you are part of it, and he's saying even again, like, that is amazing that God revealed that. Philip.
2: This probably is just like quibbling over words, but I'm, it, it, I'm starting to think about it in a different way. Um, but even the fact that it says it as a mystery and not as a change, I don't know, I got the implication that it was something that was always the case. It just wasn't known. And so I mean, that would seem to imply, with well, the Gentile, it was never just Israel. It was always Everyone. Like, the Israel was not really God's chosen... Like, not that Israel was still God's chosen people in some way, but he still always included the Gentiles. Just nobody knew And I'm not sure, like, there's probably enough other places where it sort of says, no, this is new and a change, but I, don't, I just... Even the word, the use of the word mystery sort of made it seem this idea of, like, this was always there, we just found out. All
0: right. so let's be clear. You're, you're right. Mystery being something unknown that God reveals rather than the way we use it, which is something unknown that we still don't know how it works. Right? So those are the two different uses. So we first have to translate just that, that idea out of our heads. So something that was unknown that God has now revealed is what he's saying. And you're right, it doesn't actually say whether it was the intent that it be limited to Israel or that it be expanded. In fact, some people actually say it was always the intent that it go beyond, that if you read the Old Testament carefully, even the prophets made admonitions to people outside of Israel, right? And there are places where this was always the plan. I think if you read Ephesians from the beginning about election and call, that you would be dead on to say that not only was it always the case, we just didn't know about it because, yes, for the most part, Probably the Jews thought, well, this is kind of the boundaries in which we're supposed to be. And remember, Paul is saying he's come to break down those boundaries and take away those divides, right, and to bring you in. He is speaking to them, though, so he doesn't need to address the was this always the case or not because he's saying, you've now come in, right? If he's addressing a Jewish audience, it might somehow be different. Like maybe he would have said you thought that it was just about you always, and maybe that's not true, but here he's speaking to a Gentile audience. So I think that's right. So
2: do you... I don't know, like is, is it possible that the Gentiles were still included in this being of one body before Jesus? Like, That's more my question, Like, being that it was a mystery that was always true, we just didn't know it.
0: I think what he's saying is that the intent was it to be this way, but it could only be accomplished in Christ. We can quibble over whether the intent was there or what it was, but he's clearly saying that you get to be together. And he actually uses this. I mean, you see the word together, it's three times. It's, it's, it's the emphasis of this passage because he's using alliteration, which is kind of the way that you emphasize a passage was to repeat the word. So he very cleverly basically is saying like heirs together, members together, share together. That's really like how he's, how he's doing it to emphasize and add this thing where that word comes up three times, which is like the, the maximum emphasis you have is a three-time alliteration saying they're together, together, together together. In the promise, but how? Through Christ Jesus, or actually, as you would say, in Christ. So, yeah, previously, that's going to be the the difficulty of saying, was that the intent? I would say yes, because that's what the first two chapters of Ephesians is saying. And here it's saying how it's going to happen, the means by which. Yeah? Does
3: not make sense to me, though, that no Gentile had a way to God before Christ was on earth? Like... That I don't understand because you could convert to Judaism and like there I'm sure there are there were ways to get to God, to have God in your life and be saved before Christ was physically born. I know that like God is outside of time, so yes, through Christ, whatever for all of us, but And maybe that's what he's saying, whatever, it's through Jesus, even before he was born, after he was born, but definitely, like, it can't be a new thing all of a sudden that since Christ was physically born now Gentiles can find God because they could before.
0: I think the way that I could clarify that would be to point out that what you're doing is you're reading this as an individual thing rather than a group of people. So there's nothing in here that is talking about no Gentile could come Right? It's talking more collectively to Gentiles and to Israel. Notice it's, it's talking about them as groups of people. right? Gentiles is a large category, so is Israel. So what he's really saying is what the covenant people, the promise, you're now heirs together with them, but the you is not individual like you singular. It's you as Gentiles, plural, as a people. And he's speaking specifically to Gentile Christians. And remember, he's talking to people who are in Christ as a group. The letter is written to a general group of people and saying, because you're in Christ, you're now heirs together.
3: I just think it's kind of like an important distinction, though, because if he's making them aware of something they don't know because they weren't Jews and they're not aware of, like, prophecies and things like that, that's one thing. But I think to make a statement about God's character to be like, yeah, before Christ, a whole group of people was totally shut out and God was like, you can't find me. Until Christ is born, like, you can't have me. None of this applies to you, so it's pointless. That I don't really get at all from the Bible as a whole. So I just think that's why I'm, like, it's
0: important. All I would say is I don't disagree with you that you don't get that. <laughs> and that, that many people don't either. But it would be the same thing that we would have the same debate, which we're not having, just to be clear, about why God calls people according to Ephesians and not others, right? Like, that brings us back to that same point of, I just don't like that. And I'm not resolving either one of them. I'm just saying you've correctly stated that some of us don't like the idea that he may be saying that prior to this ability for them to become joint heirs in Christ, that prior to that, that might not happen. Like, you can't doubt that the Old Testament seems to be focused on a chosen people called Israel. And there's a part of me that I couldn't find this in any of the research I did that feels like he's almost expecting that other people are going to read this other than the Gentiles he's writing to. Because I don't know... Specifically, is my humble opinion, they, they care so much that this great mystery has been revealed since they just kind of just joined. So to tell them, by the way, the mystery has been that this has now been revealed, it would be more interesting, I think, if you're speaking to a group of Jewish Christians, in my opinion. But I didn't write the letter.
4: In the beginning of Romans, Paul actually addresses this a little bit. where He, he does give, uh, he creates some space for that kind of personal, whatever you want to call that, personal salvation through other religious expressions before Christ. So I, I don't, I mean, again, not to, because I think we shouldn't be focusing on, like, conversion isn't the only method. I mean, he, he in Romans, he actually acknowledges the fact that before Christ, God allowed, or these things were allowed and you were allowed to come to some knowledge through these things and that doesn't seem to be an issue for him. Um, but again, that that I don't think is the main emphasis of this passage. What I, what I think is more interesting is um, that, and you brought this up last week, and Jill actually made a great point about this at the end of last week, that if we, the distinction here between Jew and Gentile, I don't know if it's, like it doesn't cause any problems for me, whether it's fulfilled or not, or whether there are other promises to Israel still. What's interesting to me is the other distinctions we still have today in faith so whether the distinction you know the distinctions now aren't Jew and Gentile the distinctions now are uh, I I don't know liberal conservative or this I mean there's so many other things that keep us separated in Christ and so I think that by um, you know that's something for us to consider in a kind of pastoral and theological senses like beyond just the words of this text like what's the deeper meaning here about divisions Um, And and the fact that we still try and claim parts of Christ to ourselves for for no good reason, in the same way that there were Jewish Christians doing that, you know. Um, And that's, I think, a reflection. And and Jill had brought this up last week, and we didn't talk about it. And I, I think that's an important reflection out of here.
0: Okay. Let's move on. I just want to point out something that this... Part that you see on the screen is actually one long sentence. We break it up because it's easier for us to read, but it's actually one long sentence. And actually, verse 7 is part of this as well, this long sentence. But that in this one eloquent description, he highlights God, Christ, and the Spirit in one place. And I just think that's important because I said that at the beginning that Ephesians also brings up certain types of themes that focus on the triunity of God and the Trinity and, you know, we're always searching about where would it say it or where does it imply it, but here's one of those verses that scholars look at and say, you know, in one breath, so to speak, because it's one long sentence, he's actually uniting the three parts of God and giving them different parts of the work here that he's describing. Okay? Just keep that in mind. Also, going back to our earlier talks on Scripture and the doctrine of Scripture, his concept of revelation comes from the Spirit again. So he's focusing on the where is that revelation coming from? It's now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So again, the idea of God being a revealing God, somebody who's constantly revealing himself, uh, we will never fully know God, but that doesn't mean he doesn't reveal himself to us just while we're passing through to kind of hit those from previous series that we've talked about. Let's move on in verse 7. I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Again, listen to the focus on grace. It's grace that I became a servant of this gospel. You know, servant is a shameful word. So for him to keep referring as servant or in Romans as slave, and these kinds of ideas, to, to refer to himself as being an imprisoned person later, these are things that people would find scandalous and shameful. And yet here... He boasts of, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift. By the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace, again, was given to me. Why the least? I think Paul is hearkening back here pretty clearly to the fact that he was originally the killer of Christians. He hunted them down. And killed them, and we see him, he's hearkening back to his life as Saul, the zealot one who is trying to kill Christianity and the Christians. He refers to himself here as least of all the Lord's people. Elsewhere, he refers to himself, elsewhere in another letter, as least of all the apostles. Uh, It's interesting to reflect that Paul has become the person that we would even put up on the screen earlier as Jesus versus Paul, that we would even think that there might be some way that they might be theologically the two powerhouses of the New Testament. We think that way because we read so much of Paul, we've been so influenced by that. But go back to the time that he's writing this, when all the real Christians were in Jerusalem, where his ministry was something he had to constantly defend and fight for, just the idea of taking the gospel to the Gentiles, that they did not have to go through the conversion to Judaism, and all the things that we read about historically that give us that collective, eh, at this point, you have to realize that he, when he says, I'm the least, less than the least of the Lord's people, probably in his mind he's thinking, I'm in prison. I'm over here in this shameful place. I don't think any of those people who are in the real power centers, maybe Peter, maybe James, maybe whoever it is, think anything of me at this point, and even my ministry of going to all these Gentiles. I think that gives me a little bit of perspective on the way that sometimes we see ministry and impact, and how it can change where now we speak almost exclusively of Paul and barely ever mention anyone like James or Peter in their writings, except once in a while when they're supporting Paul. Funny how that becomes. I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. This grace was given to me. What is the grace? What was given to him? To preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, the stewardship Of this mystery. He's managing the mystery itself, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Again, he's going to give us a glimpse of that mystery being revealed. His intent, God's intent. You know, these passages we've been reading are full of mystery revealed, mystery revealed, God's intent. His revelation, he's telling us, we're always asking, like, what is God doing? What's his will? What does he want? Like, I love that there's so many of these things in here that when we skim through them, it almost seems like, yeah, but that doesn't apply to me, so I don't really care. But here he's telling you, what is God's intent? His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms According to his eternal purpose. Or another translation, according to the purpose of the ages. Like from the foundations, kind of concept. The purpose was what was it again? Through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Who are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms? We should kind of have a clue because Paul's given us already a clue. He's used heavenly realms or the heavenlies a couple of times in this letter. And we said it referred to kind of the fact that the earth is not all there is. There's kind of a spiritual realm. It's not focusing on heaven as we classically think of it. The heavenly realms is really the spiritual reality of all of it. And last week we also dealt with another passage about the ruler. So... How about those clues? Are we getting any closer? Who are the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms?
1: It almost seems like it would be, you would think it would be like the rulers and authorities of this world, right? I mean, like, I mean, nations and, and governments. And Kings, yeah, governments, okay. And to me, it would make sense because it would, it would make sense in, in the fact that, okay, people and authorities should somehow recognize God's wisdom or something like that where maybe you could see this as a you know god is doing this so that the world might know him or something like that where it's just interesting that it's heavenly realms instead where why do they need to know
0: well who are they in the heavenly realms who would the rulers and authorities be who are those people like, before we figure out why they need to know who are they yeah what are the possible things we thought about like being like satan or like demonic forces yeah i mean according to using paul's language from his own letter Last week he was talking about, last week, last week when he wrote chapter two. Last, in chapter two, what he said was he used the word the ruler of the air. All right? The ruler of the air was meant to signify that kind of uh, evil, temptuous kind of desire. And we asked last week, like, you could say, do you believe in Satan? Some of us did. Some of us, yes. I believe there is an actual devil, there is a Satan. Okay, and some of us said, no, I don't. And I said last week when we dealt with it, that, well, either way, what he's talking about is in the spiritual realm, those things that take us away from what we're doing. So the same kind of device is being used. Just, you know, remember, there's no chapter divisions in his letter. He just keeps going. And here he's saying, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, he's saying, those evil spirits, the devil... Those rebellious spirits, whatever you want to call it, that are in the spiritual realm. That's who he's focusing on. But that makes the sentence even more strange to us. Because if you think he's saying, what's going on? What was the intent again? Let's back up. The intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, God's very wisdom, will be made known to them those in the spiritual realm, those in the heavenly realm, those authorities and powers, those rulers. So that describes in part what God's intent is for the church.
2: Yes? Like in taking one approach to it, that God sort of being, saying like, and I told you so to Satan, like this idea of like God making known his wisdom to the rulers and authorities, like through all, he's doing all of this to show like, yeah, I do know what I'm doing, but I like. It just sort of odd. I mean, in any context where we would want to, I want to show my wisdom to someone. It's like, we want to say, look, I'm making the right decisions Um, that you didn't realize it right now, but let me show you afterwards, oh, this was the right decision. Um, And the other reason why you'd want to show it to them is sort of rub it in their faces or something. I'm not really sure.
0: Okay. Is it Emily? Yeah. Yeah.
3: I think the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms are the ones that are trying to cause division in the church and we're talking about divisions.
1: Earlier, and I think that it's the church's job to, sh- through their words and actions, to show them otherwise. No, we will be one body. And, and that's that. No matter how hard you fight us, we're, we
3: refuse to let you divide us.
0: Because the theme so far has been about this unity of the two coming together, like joint heirs, like coming together, together, together. And it follows right after that that he was given this ministry to bring them together. And he's giving us a kind of like a so that. It was a so that, like his intent would be. Why else would he want to demonstrate this? I mean, first let's understand the sentence. The sentence seemed to be saying that through the church, he's going to reveal his ultimate wisdom, that this is like unbelievable, like God's wisdom is so deep and profound, this manifold wisdom will be made known to them. So we clearly understand that he wants to show it to them, like look, Like, my wisdom produced this, but the church is the vehicle of demonstrating it. And it does have to deal with unity, because he keeps coming back to this theme of unity over and over. And it reminds me of that same passage we see in John, when Jesus is praying and saying that they're going to know that I am your son by their unity. Of course, we've done a great job of demonstrating that as a church. right? We've done a great job of like staying as one, totally unified, locked arm in arm, right? We've done such a great job of showing, yep, he's the one because we're so unified uh, in our 2,000 denominations, right? And as Jeremy pointed out, name-calling back and forth against one another and all that kind of division that we do. All right, so we clearly don't get that. But this isn't about us. This is about God's intent. This is about what God wanted. This is about the mystery he's revealing. So is it because of that? You know, that's just about as good of an explanation as any other because why else would you want to show, if we've correctly understood the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, why else would you even care to show them? Other than, because they're, you know, they're not other people. It's clearly, as Morgan was talking about, if this meant like earthly people, we could say, yes, we could show them. And that is what kind of the passage in John talks about, showing other people. But here, we're probably talking about people who, in my theology, beyond redemption anyway, that's not really for them anyway. But he's just kind of showing them like, see? This was all supposed to work out in this purpose in some way. Okay. But, I mean, that would use use the word speculation, but that's okay because we're putting ourselves trying to understand what God was doing it for, and that's probably putting ourselves in the mind of the Almighty, which always never works out. And I don't even know, like, God would even, like, have to do that. You know, like, I mean, isn't time just going to end up proving all that anyway? Like, I mean, if that's really true, like, you know, this is like a big neener, neener, neener from God in a way, like, right? Like... (laughs) You know, okay, yeah.
1: In Job. It shows that that God and Satan, at least whether you believe Satan's real or whatever, that a malignant force and God have a conversation about Job. So that would lead one to think that unless that was just not an actual story, that they do have conversations. And so maybe in that sense, in the spiritual realm, there have been situations in which. Um, the two sides have met and said, Why are you, you know, explain to me, why, why are you doing this? And so maybe that could say, or maybe this could just be an example of God saying, this, this is why I'm doing this. And maybe it's not so much a meaner, meaner as a, This
0: is why. Whether you take, whether you take Job as meaning that there's an actual devil who's having a conversation with God in a cosmic realm, all right, or there are other ways to interpret Job, meaning that this is like one of God's own angels or just some accuser person. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. You don't even have to go that far back to see, at least if you believe in the Gospels, that Jesus and the devil have that exact same kind of back and forth. Right? In, in, in his temptation, he has the same kind of, kind of dueling back and forth conversation, which you would think, why would he even tolerate that? Like, why even have that discussion? Why do we have it recorded? I mean, if it's recorded and you believe it's accurate, that means that Jesus relayed that to other people because there was nobody else there. That he told his disciples what he had gone through and what his responses had been. So it seems that for some reason, in that way, there is some of that back and forth. I'm not sure why. I mean, again, we're we're probably peering over the uh, over the abyss at that point to try to understand it, but it would not be strange. We've seen it. Cormac
4: um, also just seems like in the passage. Um, I mean, like it, it seems clear all around that like God respects the authorities that in to and spiritual. But it seems like here he's just like kind of making it known to, like, to everyone that he is still sovereign.
0: Yeah, and Paul is describing God in this long doxology. This is a praise about God. Just keep in mind, though, whatever we believe about the ultimate reasons God would do this, the point is still the same. The intent was that through the church this would be done. There's that, that puts a burden on us, a responsibility. That puts some weight on the idea that it's, he's doing this through the church, through a collective group of people. No single solo messianic figures here. He's talking about us like trying to change the world individually. The church is the vehicle. Why? Because the church is the body. Why? Because the whole body is in Christ. It's only reading it through a very, very Western and even more American Western lens that we get so much individual Christianity. So much of it is dealing with people as a community. And here he's talking about the church. So we've not done well on this, and I think we should at least acknowledge that and deal with the fact that he's talking about how it's going to be done. Okay. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Access. We talked about the access that he was talking about last week. The access that we now have to God because of Christ being our peace. In Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Probably not the best interpretation. A more literal reading of this is, In whom we have boldness and access in confidence through His faithfulness. The difference is, we could read that as, Through our faith in Him, we may approach God. But actually, probably a better way to read that is, it's all about God. This whole thing is about God. It's not about us. We have boldness and access and confidence through His faithfulness, through Christ's faithfulness. We have access. We have boldness to access the Father in confidence. All right. So that's probably a better way to read that. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are your glory. Okay, we can understand Paul constantly saying, I'm suffering for a reason, but why is his suffering their glory? The Gentile Christians that he's writing to, why is it their glory that he's suffering? Remember, glory is a very strange word in some way because he's suffering in chains. He should be ashamed. While Paul is in prison, he later writes to Timothy and he's saying, don't be ashamed of me. Because people are saying all sorts of things because I'm in prison. In fact, some people could read that Paul was in prison because of his ministry to the Gentiles. Okay, we understand. Don't be discouraged because of his suffering. I mean, they're not discouraged. They're like, hey, better you than me, right? I'm glad it's you. But it's for your glory. Because these are the things that are going to be bestowed. These are the glory that's going to come to you. This whole gospel has been preached to you because of the suffering that I've gone through. That is the glory that you'll ultimately receive. That's how he says these things. Let me pull some application points out of these things we just read. A lot of them have already come out, but I just want to be clear that we're not just missing some of these. Ministry is a grace. And we think of things that come to us like undeserved favor of the Lord. That's grace. That's our definition. Like salvation, that's grace. Ministry seems to be like work. It seems to be a response Maybe it seems to be like a thank you to the Lord, like you save me, I'll do some good things for you. Or maybe it's an obligation, like, oh, because of that, then I should, right? Paul repeatedly refers to ministry as a grace. Even our participation with God in any way, even in ministry, is undeserved favor, is a gift that we have ministry. We don't think of it that way. We either think of ourselves as putting on the superhero cape and like going, oh, I'm going into ministry, or we think of it as something that we have to do out of guilt or obligation, and he's saying, It's a gift. Just like salvation is a gift, just like life in Christ is a gift, so is ministry. We are stewards of grace. He uses that word administration twice, but the Greek word really is the same word that we translate as steward or managers. We're stewards of grace. So you could think of that as we should steward the grace just like he did. He had received God's grace in knowing Christ on the road to Damascus and becoming an apostle and also administering or stewarding grace to let other people come in to the body of Christ. But we are no different in that way. So our modern application, setting aside all these, hey, Jew, Gentile, that's just so first century. We just don't care about that anymore. But these things are definitely... Spot on for us. We're stewards of grace. How do you steward grace? I mean, not just how do you do it. How do you steward grace? Because you are a steward of grace. The fact that you've been given grace makes you a steward to manage it and to increase it and to share it with others and to do something with it. So how do you steward it? The third point seems to be pretty clear is that ministers are going to endure hardship. Not ministers like somebody else, like we are ministers. Ministers are those who do ministry. All of us have received grace. All of us have received a ministry. All of us are stewards of grace, and ministers will endure hardship. So we will endure that, and he seems to say, don't be discouraged by that. But again, that's because most of us are not going through it for the sake of ministry. And we should be concerned sometimes. Some people would point out that if you're not being placed where you're enduring hardship for your faith, that may be an indication that you're not really stewarding it that well. I think that would be a fair question that he would probably be asking at some point. Hardship, it seems, is positively viewed at the end there. We suffer with Christ. Entering into hardship brings us closer to being in a place where we are with Christ because Christ suffered. We suffer with him. We suffer for Christ for others who are in Christ. Those are ways that we can apply that. Just take a second right now to look at these because I don't want to just spout out things and just move on. Look at these things for just a moment and use them for a moment and say, where am I in my belief about ministry being a grace? Do I really believe ministry is that thing? Do I engage in it? How do I steward it? Where is the hardship that results from it in my life, if any? What is the positive result? Just take a second to just let that sink in for a moment. For this digression, he goes back to the thought that he originally had, which is the manner in which he prays for the Gentile Christians. I want you just to hear the closing prayer as a prayer over you, rather than walking through it and piecing it apart, just hear it as it was meant to be, a prayer. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we all ask or imagine, according to his power that is his work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.